Joe Bowler is a professor of mathematics education at Stanford University. She is the author of nine books on mathematics learning, including Limitless Mind, Learn, Lead, and Live Without Barriers. In 2013, Joe Bowler taught the first ever massive online open course on mathematics education for Stanford University called How to Learn Math. That same year, she co-founded ucubed.org, which offers, dare I say, fun math resources for math teachers. Joe Bowler is an advisor to the PISA team at the OECD and one of the authors of the very much discussed 2021 revision of the California Mathematics Framework, which is an advisory for kindergarten to grade 12 maths education in California. So welcome, Joe Bowler. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, now, when I said very much discussed in the intro about the California Mathematics Framework, I was a little bit underplaying it. Who would have guessed that a 900-page document on a mathematics framework would have thrown up so much passion and debate mm-hmm. about mathematics and mm-hmm. how to teach it? Exactly. The way I think about it is we have a system of mathematics teaching at the moment where only some students get to the high-level courses. And we are trying to open up teaching and pathways so many more students can get access to high-level courses. But people who have benefited from the system, and it tends to be wealthy, successful people, don't want it to be changed. So they have generated a huge amount of pushback. They've been very organized. They've phoned around lots of people. They've really put a lot of attention into trying to stop this framework going through. And so just to be clear for our listeners, equity is uh, the focus for this new framework, right? I would say that equity is a part of it. We want more students to be successful, uh, but we have many things in the framework that I think are very exciting, making mathematics more collaborative, more problem solving, having students explore and investigate rather than just sit and listen to a teacher, um, having more data science in the, sub- in the subject in the US, there's really been little attention played to data. So there are lots of initiatives in the framework that are pretty exciting, I think. One thing that I wanted to talk with you about immediately um, is the, the math fear. I mean, that's something that a lot of people have, regardless mm-hmm. of what socioeconomic background they come from, mm-hmm. including a little bit myself. Mm-hmm. So many people, you're right. Yes, well, we know that a lot of people have maths anxiety, including the undergraduates I teach at Stanford, who've been very successful in mathematics. And it comes from a few different things. One is this pervasive idea that people are born with a maths brain or they're not. So many people, when they're in school, as soon as they struggle on some mathematics, start to think, I don't have the right kind of brain. That is a part of it. Other parts of it are when maths is taught very procedurally and people are encouraged to work quickly under speed. All of those things set up fear of maths, fear of not being able to work quickly enough. And of course, if you develop maths anxiety as a child, as many people do, that often snowballs as you get older. So that that maths anxiety really sets in and affects people in all sorts of areas of their lives. Is there a crucial age 
after which people begin to flounder in math, where they begin to lose their confidence. Have you noticed that? I would say that the critical age for students in terms of actively turning away from maths and thinking, I can't do this, I'm not going to do it, is somewhere in their early teens. Students can have bad maths experiences in the earlier years, but we find that students between the ages of about 10 and 13 are very vulnerable to deciding, I just can't do maths and I'm going to turn away from it. Right. So those are the the crucial ages where math needs to entice them and reassure them. All ages are important, of course, but that does seem a very critical time. Now, you brought up the word struggling, and I noticed in in researching for this interview that struggling and grappling are words that come up quite a lot in your work. Now, why is that important? Yes, struggle is so interesting. So it turns out, I work with neuroscientists at Stanford, and one of the Mm -hmm. uh, forms of evidence they have that's so incredible is showing that when we're struggling, when we're finding things difficult, those are the very best times for our brains. Those are when our brains are working really hard. And I know that many students, when they struggle in classrooms, start to think, I'm not good, and they turn away from the subject. But they should actually be celebrating because that's a great time for their brain. When I work with students and I teach regular school-age students from time to time, and they look at me and say, oh, this is so hard. I say to them, that's because your brain is working so hard. That's fantastic. You want that feeling of it being hard. So this message that struggle is really good and we should embrace it has not really infiltrated schools. And students don't know that struggle is good. That's one of the reasons I'm really passionate about getting that message out. When I do find that when they really take that on, they're much more willing to keep going in maths problems. And in life, there are many, many areas of life where we all struggle. And knowing that struggle is really good And good for your brain, I think, is super important for people. It's a very delicate exercise for the teacher, I suppose, to find that point of, you know, when struggle and grappling is good and then when it it goes on a bit too long and the the student becomes frustrated. Mm -hmm. How do you train teachers to locate that moment where uh, maybe they need a little Mm -hmm. help? That's a great question. Um, When do you jump in and help students? I would say that teachers have generally over the years jumped in and saved students from struggle. They think that's part of their job. The student's struggling. I'm going to go in and make the question easier for them. Then they won't struggle anymore, which is not what we want because students should be in that place of struggle. Now, of course, there may be a point where they get frustrated, which is why we, in our teaching approach, make sure that students have lots of resources to keep going. We, may, we create problems where students, everybody can start the problem. We call this a low floor, high ceiling problem. Mm-hmm. Anybody can start it, but you can take it to high levels. But there aren't barriers in the way in these problems. And if students need something, there may be tools or manipulatives or something they can build or work with that will help them. And sometimes a teacher also should come in and ask a question or help them develop their thinking. But uh, a teacher asking a question may be a a fantastic moment for students to go forward, better than jumping in and telling students what to do and not having them experience that thinking themselves. 
Right. So inquiry-based learning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you talk about resources and tools Mm -hmm. that they can go to, what do you mean by that? Well, we're in the 21st century now, and there are lots of digital tools that can be So not slide rules, rulers then. (laughs) (laughs) No longer slide rules. That's right. And, you know, people are still debating whether students should be able to use calculators, which is pretty incredible when you see where we are with technology and all the tools that students can have. So uh, we love many computer-based tools, uh, things like Wolfram Alpha that will students can input questions and they'll show you lots of different aspects of the problem. Um, So there's tools like that. Desmos is another lovely computer-based tool. There's good old-fashioned calculators, but there's also sometimes, it depends on the age and the problems, but maybe students should have tiles that they move around to help them understand area. Or Or sugar cubes. Or sugar cubes, exactly. We like sugar cubes in some of our problems. I notice that you often encourage students to draw out math problems. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that? Yeah, super important. Yeah, so one of the things that neuroscience has shown, this is Vinod Meenan at Stanford, is that every time anyone works on a maths problem, there are five different areas of the brain that are activated. Two of them are visual pathways. So thinking visually is really important to mathematics. But what we really want is connections between these brain pathways. The highest achieving people in the world are those who have a lot more brain connections. So that happens when you experience maths in different ways. For example, if you see a problem in numbers, but then you draw it, you're going to get these lovely brain connections happening between different areas of the brain. I also, in my own mathematics learning over the years, I have always found drawing to be really helpful. Those complicated word problems that give you lots of information in a paragraph, the very first thing I do with them is draw the information I have. So I've you know, personally found it very useful over the years, but it's very interesting to learn from neuroscience that we need and want these visual parts of our brains to be active. Does that also, besides activating more neural pathways, does that also feed into a kind of intuitive approach to mathematics of a, a number sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we have a lot of information on our website, UCubed, about number sense. Mm-hmm. And number sense is a really important goal. A lot of people think the goal for young children is to memorize lots of math facts. We don't think that's the most important goal. We think the most important goal is that they're comfortable with numbers and can use them flexibly. So somebody with number sense might look at a problem like 18 times 5 and think, well, instead of working out 18 times 5, I'll work out 9 times 10. Or maybe they work out 20 times 5 and take off two fives. So they're then dealing with numbers flexibly. And we find that that's really important for students. Now, as well as being flexible with those numbers, I could draw pictures of what 18 times 5 looks like and how I can take two fives off it. And so really there's every part of mathematics can be represented visually. And it's really helpful when we do that. My daughter said to me, she's studying math in university up in Scotland, and she said that the hardest thing about doing math online Mm -hmm. during COVID was that she was not able to meet up Mm -hmm. with her classmates to work Mm -hmm. on problems Mm -hmm. together. Yeah, it's that's another really important part of learning is collaborating. 
mathematics more than other subjects tends to be an individual pursuit and people think it's an individual subject. But actually students sharing ideas, thinking about why methods work, talking about what they might do next is also very helpful for our brain for understanding. It's unfortunate that your daughter wasn't put into chat groups where they could do maths together online. That was how we got through it um, in my teaching at Stanford. But yes, collaborating is really important. Now, I always think when we think about math, we think, well, that if there's any discipline that's completely colorblind, it's got to be math. And yet, as as we kind of talked about a little bit earlier when we started our conversation, socioeconomics really does play into it. I mean, it's the case in California. And in Pisa, we found in 2018 that, you know, factors like parents' education or family income level, it accounted for 14% of students' performance in math. Could you parse it out for me why that is the case? Mm-hmm. Well, we've had a math system for a long time that has really emphasized students memorizing procedures. How many methods can I memorize and reproduce? And if you have that system of education, it then one thing that can be very helpful to you is a tutor. And I know that in the area I live in, Silicon Valley, it's probably the most highly sought after position, maths tutors. All of these wealthy parents are saying, come and help my students and do more of this. But that doesn't happen as much when we teach maths in a much more open way that's uh, really about exploring and discovering. Doesn't become as tutorable, if you like. So that's one of the things that we recommend. Now, I would say too, that when we teach maths in a way that's open and engaging, students problem solving and reasoning, students are so excited by the mathematics. The the approach we put out in the maths framework is one that's been used by many schools for many years. It's not just a new uh, idea. And what we see is that when mathematics is taught in these richer, deeper ways, those inequities fade away. Now, of course, here in the United States, there are horrible systemic racial inequities. And we know that students of color are getting awful negative messages all the time. And so there's, you know, only so far you can go with making mathematics super engaging. And But when we help teachers, and this is a big part of it too. I know that many teachers think that some kids are maths kids and some kids aren't. And they think their job is to kind of find the maths kids. Now, you layer into that kind of thinking bias and uh, racial sort of thinking and thinking about who can be successful. And you have a horrible system where we see the sort of inequities that you're referring to. So I do think helping teachers understand that all students can be successful is a part of getting a a more equitable system. And, you know, I I think we see the biggest inequities in maths out of the school subjects. And that is the subject where people believe you can do it or you can't. So um, I really think changing that will go a long way to making maths more equitable. Do you have training programs for teachers in developing a mathematical mindset? Yes, Mm -hmm. we, we certainly do. We have lots of things. Actually, I've just come 
from two days of working with 160 teachers who came to Stanford. We have workshops at Stanford, fantastic enthusiasm and excitement for two days. Um, but we also, I and the, my co-director of YouCube, Kathy Williams, we go around the country. We go to different countries. We're doing work in Scotland this summer um, to help teachers get these ideas. And then we also have online classes that help. I have a free online class that was designed for students, but actually lots of teachers take it too and lots of parents take it. It's been taken by half a million people. And then we have more detailed courses for teachers, which are like 30 hours of professional development. But even though they're online, teachers tell me that they really impacted them and helped them change the way they think about kids and get ideas for teaching differently. So yeah, we have lots of different ways of trying to get these messages out to people. You assign students open assignments, mm -hmm. open tasks. Mm -hmm. So what's an example of that? And why do you keep your uh, yeah. assignments open? Well, we can, there's two different versions of maths in my mind and what I've seen in the world. One is one that's short questions with one answer, one method, and the other is mathematics where you can ask more open questions, as you say, where different methods, different ideas can come in. A very simple way of illustrating this is a common maths question in classrooms is, can you find the area of an eight by three rectangle? Mm -hmm. So students are asked that question. They're expected to do a calculation and come up with a number. I would change that question into um, how many rectangles can you find with an area of 24? So now students are drawing out different rectangles. They're thinking about the relationship between length and width. Um, it's a much deeper question. Now, that's only a small little example, but we can do this with all mathematics. And we love to ask students much more open questions. We have a lovely algebra example. People think, oh, algebra. <laughs> algebra can't be open or creative. Right. But we have a lov lovely algebra example where we show a pattern growing and we ask kids, how do you see it? What do you see as different in the different cases of a pattern? And they sit and they draw with each other and they talk about their ways of seeing it. And eventually we get to describing these different ways with algebraic expressions. But that's it's so much more meaningful for kids than just seeing a page of symbols that they move around or lesson. How did you embark on developing this approach to math? Well, I myself learned to be a teacher in London. I attended the Institute of Education, had a very good education about how to teach maths way back then. And it was different to the way I'd learned it in school, but I listened and learned. And then I went and I taught in London schools and started teaching in these ways. And of course, you start to see how engaged the students are. Actually, an interesting thing, when I went to teach in my first job in London, in Camden Town, the students were in different ability groups. And my first class was the lowest group. And the first thing a student said to me was, why should we bother? They'd just been put into these low groups and that meant they could only get low grades on the exam. And they know it and they feel it. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, it was very hard conversation for me. I, I didn't know what to say. I knew that 
they were destined for these low grades. So over that year, we we got rid of the ability groups and started teaching it uh, mixed groups, which has stayed in the school since then. Um, and, you know, you start to see that even kids who maybe are really low achieving end up doing amazing things. So every couple of years, we invite kids somewhere, sometimes campus, sometimes schools, and then we teach them in these ways. We did that with a group of middle school students a few years ago. And over four weeks, they improved their achievement by the equivalent of 2.8 years of school. And what we did with them was we got rid of those ideas that there were maths people and non-maths people. And we taught them in this different way. This was the summer camp in 10 districts, I think. Is that, is that it? So first of all, we did it ourselves at Stanford. We got really great results. And so then we started teaching other teachers how to do it, giving them the curriculum. And in 2019, we studied it in districts across the United States, also in Scotland and Brazil. And all of these groups, uh, we looked at achievement change. And that was really great because all of those camps also got these huge boosts in kids' achievement People have been saying to us, oh, it only happened because students came to Stanford and were in this special environment. But no, turns out teachers all over the country taught with the same materials and the same messages and also got these huge boosts. And not only did students really boost their achievement at the end of the camp, but they went back to their regular school and got significantly higher maths uh, GPA grades when they were back in school. I read an opinion piece that you wrote in the LA Times that tech companies like Google and Apple, who are headquartered in California, of course, have had to go outside of the US to hire people. And that made me think about a little bit of the debate about your the, the framework introducing data science into high school math. Right. Yeah, it's so exciting. This is getting pushback, but it's actually very exciting that that in in California, well, I should say for people listening, in the US, mathematics in high school has tended to be a course in algebra, a course in geometry, another course in algebra, no data at all, even though data has been taught, I know, in other, sub, in other countries for a long time. But in the US, there's been none. Um, and there's been this movement to bring data science into high school, into all the grades, actually. But in high school, there is now a one-year course that students can take instead of Algebra 2. We've actually made one at, at Stanford, but other people have them as well. And they're already, we've already got 40,000 kids taking those data science courses. They're actually loving quantitative thinking for the first time for many of them because it's real and they're using real data and situations that are meaningful for them. So um, it's very exciting. And it is also the point of pushback that people are saying, no, don't have data science as an option. Everybody should learn algebra and geometry. Everybody should push towards calculus. So I guess, you know, this is what happens when you try and modernize mathematics and it's not what people experience themselves. I think there's also certain math skills and, and you know, talking about another framework, the PISA 2022 maths framework yeah. mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. makes a case for certain math skills that need to perhaps come to the foreground because of the way the world is changing. Right. And one of those is, you know, to be able to understand computational thinking. Yes, exactly. Super important. 
And I love the movements, Conrad Wolfram and others, uh, to bring computational thinking to more students. When students leave school and go into the world, they will need to make sense of complex problems, set up models, use computers to run through uh, data and numbers. And we're just not teaching students in any way how to engage in that sort of computational thinking in our current maths courses. We have a lot of content in the US in the, that's written into the standards that ask students to do things that in the, in the world now would always be run by a computer. You would never ask an adult to go through by hand all these different steps with all the room for error. Um, but we're making students do that in classrooms. We're getting them to go through all of these methods by hand. And so, yeah, I think uh, mathematics content and standards are really in need of an update. I love the PISA framework. It's definitely pointing us in a really important direction. There's arguments that it makes for understanding the difference between linear and non-linear thinking and you know, understanding exponential growth. And yeah. I also think about the relevance of that for understanding phenomena that we're going through now and which are still to come with COVID oh, yeah. and climate exactly. change. Right. And fake news. Yeah, I mean, that's right. You look at where we are with fake news, with climate change, with viruses, we need students to make sense of data. It is a life and death situation even for them to be able to understand and make sense of data. And just to be able to tell the difference between what's right and what's wrong. A lot of these students are now on social media. They're bombarded with information. And having that data literacy, questioning whether something is valid or not, is extremely important for their lives. And so, yeah, we're... Part of the movement I'm in to bring more data science is increasing data literacy all through the grades. Even kindergartners can do be collecting and looking at data, and we can develop that data awareness as students get older, uh, so that by the time they're in high school, they're able to run complicated models with data. Mm -hmm. So yes, I, this is a really important modernization of mathematics. Well, I good luck with that, with Thank modernizing <laughs> mathematics. And yes, it turns out to be rather difficult. So. Yeah. <laughs> but I think we'll all get there. Well, you know, thank you very much, Joe Bowler. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about the OECD's work on education and skills, find us on Twitter. Our handle is at OECD EDU skills.